This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Kate Mann. Kate is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Cornell University. She joined me to talk about her new book entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. We also spoke about her previous work, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Please be aware that this conversation broadly discusses topics including sexual assault and rape. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto this show Kate Mann, who is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Cornell University, and Kate is also an author of two books, the first book being Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, and the second book that has um, recently been released is called Entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. And um, I'm really, really excited to be welcoming Kate to the show, who I'm told uh, listened to Triple R in her 20s and um, originates from Australia, but is now based over in New York. So thank you so much, Kate, for joining us. And it's such an honor to have you on the show. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. I'm so happy to be able to have this conversation. Well, I've got to say I have been um, admiring your work from afar for a very long time. And um, when Down Girl came out, it seemed like it was perfect in so many ways in terms of the timing of the book and the conversations that we were all having, particularly around the Me Too movement, for example. But I did want to start with that book because it does actually set the scene and introduce concepts that you use in Entitled, your latest book. First up, I'd love to ask about your work in philosophy and what brought you to examine some of these really complex issues that certainly involve relations between men and women. Of course, it does extend far beyond that in terms of non-binary people as well. But how did you first come to these issues from a philosophical angle? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for the kind words. I really appreciate them. Um, That means a lot to me. You know, I think it was actually the experience of teaching that kind of made some of these issues salient to me for the first time. Um, I started working on the topic of misogyny that has since become my kind of philosophical obsession. Um, I started working on it just after my first year of teaching at Cornell, And I I think it was the fact that even though I've been a feminist my whole life and I've always been interested in feminist philosophy since I started um, studying philosophy at at Melbourne Uni, I I hadn't viscerally appreciated the vulnerability of girls and women until I was teaching students who I felt a sense of responsibility for. So it was partly that I was living near a sorority house and um, was highly aware of the statistics about sexual assault on campus and sexual harassment and other forms of misogyny that I knew, statistically speaking, many of my female students were likely to be facing. And that, I think, is what really got me started down this path when Elliot Roger committed uh, several murders at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, and targeted a whole sorority house full of women. So it was that sense of women's vulnerability to predatory 
and misogynistic behaviour on the part of men that made me really conscious of these issues in a whole new way. That's really interesting because for some women and girls, um, they would potentially have become more aware of these issues and how they personally affect them at different points in their life and depending on their own experiences and what's happened to them in their life. And so I guess for some people, we might encounter it younger in life in our primary years or our secondary years, or for some people, it may end up being at university when these things become so clear. And so it's not that surprising that you might have started to witness some of these gender and sexual dynamics playing out in a place like a, an American college or, you know, in Australia, an Australian university. And certainly Australia's universities have similar problems. And that's something that's been discussed in the, at least the past decade in Australia in a more open way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny you bring up secondary school, actually, because just to jump in, I mm. I was one of um, three girls at an old boys school the year it went co-ed. Um, wow. In Australia, yeah, on the um, in the suburbs of Melbourne at Ivanhoe Grammar School, and it was just, to be honest, a horrific experience. And I hadn't had the language to really describe the kind of sexism and misogyny that. I faced and that my cohort faced at that point but you know it was really pernicious and to be honest quite traumatic and so it was sort of the experience of seeing other girls and young women who were in a similar position than the position I'd been in and who I wanted to have more tools than I had at that age when I was you know 16, 17. I wanted them to have tools to describe some of these prevalent social problems. And I think that that combination of the personal and the political is what got me so invested in trying to hopefully give people a way of describing experiences that are incredibly pervasive and pernicious. Well, I've got to say, I wish I had these tools because I I feel like I was grasping for ways to conceive of what was happening for myself. And I'm sure I'm not the only one and neither would you in terms of when we're first encountering these situations and they are novel to us um, either intellectually and or personally it is very you know difficult because you often feel like well there must be something wrong with me exactly yeah you don't realize that there's all these other forces conspiring against you <laughs> but at the time it feels quite personal and quite specific to you the individual exactly that's that's really it and also misogyny manifests in so many different ways that I think it's quite hard to see the connections between all these different facets of life in which you might be derogated Mm. or dismissed or silenced and so trying to show that there's a kind of unity there and that a lot of these ways of downranking women and girls as well as as you mentioned non-binary people sometimes suffer from the same fate or worse you know I think trying to both give a language to the phenomena and also show how various aspects of it are interlinked. Um, That's really what these projects, um, these two books have been all about. Mm. And so I would love to hear in your words, particularly starting with the concepts that we're talking about here, misogyny and sexism. And sometimes I guess the way that I've 
heard of them talked about is that, oh, well, sexism are these kind of covert and sometimes overt ways that we have biased beliefs about gender and sex and the way that men and women should behave and the types of norms that we expect them to conform to. And then often in colloquial or more common parlance, we would see misogyny as being like the step up from sexism and being like hatred of women and a kind of really extreme form of sexism. But that isn't the way that you conceive of it. And the way that you conceive of it is a lot more helpful, I've got to say, than the way that I've heard things spoken about um, as I've just outlined. So I'd love to hear the way that you have conceptualized these two forces and how they actually um, interact, how they're related and how they're different? Yeah, thank you. I love that question. I mean, I think there's a grain of truth in both common sense definitions that you gave, but I think I would try to think about both sexism and misogyny in terms of their function vis-a-vis patriarchy. So the way that I think about it is that sexism is an ideology. It's a set of beliefs and theories and myths about how men and women are naturally suited to their stereotypically chosen social roles. So they're the kinds of beliefs that buttress the idea that men are naturally better suited to excelling in business and academia, certain sports and politics, leadership in general, whereas women are naturally better suited according to sexist ideology to caregiving roles. And that is kind of the bad science of patriarchy. So the way I sometimes like to put it is that sexism wears a lab coat, whereas misogyny, in contrast, I hold goes on witch hunts. So misogyny is meant to be the kind of active dynamic wing of patriarchy that actively polices and enforces a patriarchal social order by visiting girls and women with hostility and hatred that they face paradigmatically, although not not exclusively, but most typically when they don't stay in their lane, when they have ideas beyond their station, or when they're perceived as not being a quote-unquote good girl or good woman. And so that's when misogyny characteristically comes to the fore. It's almost that it kicks in when sexism fails. So when sexism fails to successfully relegate girls and women to their allotted social roles, misogyny comes along and forces girls and women into those social roles or at least attempts to. Mm. And so when we're thinking about these in concrete terms or concrete examples, how might we think of that dynamic of where sexism seeks to rationalise gendered labour and bad beliefs and a certain ideology and then when that does fail, when that kind of first step is not sufficient, that misogyny steps in? And How might that play out in an example or two? Yeah, so, I mean, one good example of this is the myth that women are more empathetic than men. So that actually turns out to be false. Men and women are about as empathetic as each other on average unless you trigger gender by making someone circle their gender on the questionnaire and making it kind of salient in someone's mind, which is a hint that it's not so much that women are naturally more caregiving or more suited to caregiving roles, more caring and kind and compassionate and altruistic. It's more that they're expected to be. And so the way that often plays out is that women, especially I think prominent female leaders, are heavily penalized, heavily punished when they're not perceived as 
sufficiently caring, kind, considerate, empathetic, etc. So, I mean, one way in which we see women being excessively penalized for not conforming to these kinds of gender stereotypes is if you look at the treatment, say, of Julie Gillard in Australia, I think we saw lots of ways in which she was heavily punished and policed according to a sort of stereotype of what a good woman would be. And, you know, if she showed the slightest misstep, she would be labelled a bitch, a witch, a liar, even though many of the standards she was held to Um, This isn't by any means to say that she was remotely perfect, but often her male counterparts weren't being held to similarly stringent moral standards. Mm. Um, So that's one of the ways that this, I think, plays out as we see prominent women being being shot down for um, not conforming to a kind of ideal of perfection when it comes to good womanhood. And that's certainly the case in many arena. And when you think about the business world and, as you said, politics, you get this kind of backlash effect of get back in your place. Mm-hmm. And also that thing you've just mentioned about you're not empathetic enough, you're not demonstrating warmth, which is something female leaders are supposedly meant to do. And that was also something you raised about Hillary Clinton is in Down Girl, it was about she received similar types of backlash in terms of the way that she behaved and the things that she wore, for example, that apparently were not appropriate either in terms of people obsessing over her pantsuits as being <laughs> one kind of seemingly trivial but substantial example. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. One of the things that I noticed when I started to pay attention to the coverage in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election here was just the way the rhetoric surrounding Hillary and Gillard were incredibly similar, despite the fact that they had relatively little in common apart from being center-left politicians. So, you know, people would say about both of them that they were too coiffed, they were too polished, they were too airbrushed, and thus they were somehow kind of inauthentic that they didn't have any ideas of their own, that they didn't have any real belief in anything, that they were somehow like a hollow doll of a figure. And, of course, endless, endless worries about their trustworthiness, whether they were dissembling, lying, um, whether they had a kind of just a completely uh, evil persona even in some extreme cases. You know, there was a sense, even sometimes on the left, that you might as well just vote for the right wing guy because at least he stands for something. And that kind of direct, (laughs) direct quote, you know, which was easy to turn up examples that uh, were applied um, to both of these leaders, this was done completely unselfconsciously. I think there is this real suspicion and distrust of female leaders. Again, not that they're perfect, but... Mm there was a pretty clear case for, you know, for example, thinking that, that Clinton was more honest than Trump and yet she was the one who was often tarred with the brush of supposed dishonesty despite, you know, a lack of evidence that she was any less trustworthy than the average politician. Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting that Julia Gillard's misogyny speech really did 
become viral because it's rare that many things in Australia (laughs) make its way around the entire globe Mm -hmm. and are still talked about today. And it's something that Julia Gillard says in discussions about this is that even now today, she's stopped on the street by women and girls saying, you know, this speech really resonated with me. And these aren't people who potentially know Tony Abbott, so that can't necessarily be the only reason why it resonated with them. Mm -hmm. But I would like to ask about that before we jump into some of the other things, because that kind of speech and the way that it galvanised women in a very unique way does seem to be, to some people, a bit inexplicable, because not many speeches or not many situations can do that or do do that in this issue. Um, Although we do see great activism, and we have seen that around the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, we saw huge amounts of activism. But, you know, around a speech like that, it was interesting to see that response and I just wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, no, it was, I think everything you said is is exactly right. It's, I mean, it was an incredible crystallising moment and it also is, it was one of the events that saw a market Google spike for the word misogyny. And I think back in 2012, I think it was October 2012 when she gave the misogyny speech, I think it was one of the things that really brought the term back into vogue because it had previously been not that common of a term. Many more people had theorized uh, sexism and gender depression and objectification and other notions. But to actually call something misogyny was a very, I think, strong and rhetorically powerful claim that really called out the rank hostility that Gillard was facing and that so many women can identify with when she talked about Abbott standing next to a sign that said ditch the witch when she talked about him jeering at her that she should be made an honest woman of um, all of these I think were they were the kinds of insults and downranking moves that are really the essence of misogyny And yeah, I think most women have faced something similar. And so when she gave words to the phenomena, I think it resonated powerfully, even for people who weren't particularly aligned with Gillard politically. That's a really great take. I did want to address how you're looking at this in a very systemic way and how we will often look at sexism and misogyny in in some cases as being kind of an individual problem or deficiency. And perhaps it springs from someone's background or their upbringing or their distorted beliefs that have somehow shaped them. And it's often put down to these types of personal failings or issues. And so um, it can end up creating a kind of distancing effect for others, for men and women in terms of, oh, well, that was just them. Totally. I kind of wanted to understand that difference and the way that you conceive of that difference being quite important and how that actually functions and provides perhaps a better way of dealing with the issue when it is at that systemic level. Yeah, I love that framing. I mean, I think what this points to is the way in which we often reduce misogyny to a psychological phenomenon, you know, something like hatred in the heart of an individual man. And I try to counter that by thinking of misogyny as very much a structural phenomenon as well as a political one. And In a slogan, it's about what women face, not what men feel. So to unpack that a bit, I think of misogyny as a property of social systems or environments and that it afflicts an environment in as much as 
a girl or woman will face particular kinds of hostility and aggression and punishment and policing and similar when she is perceived as not conforming to the norms and expectations of patriarchy. Um, and of course, that's going to differ a lot depending on how she's positioned in other social respects in terms of her positioning along the lines of race and class and being cis or trans, being queer or hep, so-called straight, um, her age, her body, um, her body type, disabilities. These are all other um, factors which affect the patriarchal norms and expectations that different groups of women are subject to. But nonetheless, I think when a woman is positioned as required to uphold a certain kind of image vis-a-vis patriarchy, when she is perceived as straying from her allotted role, that's when this prevalent kind of hostility and aggression is liable to crop up, not only from individual men, but also from social institutions and practices. Um, So we also get say, especially in the U.S., very hostile forms of anti-abortion policy that essentially punish women who uh, want to terminate a pregnancy rather than being, quote-unquote, good mothers. Although, of course, I should note that the majority of women who seek out abortions already have children um, and, you know, either can't afford to or don't wish to or... um, are unable to support another child. Um, But at any rate, that's the kind of way that I see misogyny unfolding is within a social system or environment that makes life difficult for women who are not towing the line. That's such a great way to put it. And it is really, um, I guess, a good point to lead into some of the examples that you give in Entitled, because reading the first uh, couple of chapters was really fascinating because you you obviously referenced Down Girl and we've talked about your arguments around misogyny um, being understood as the hostility girls and women face, serving to police and enforce gendered norms and expectations. And then you go on to say that that definition raised many of the questions that you've been thinking about ever since, including what are the gendered norms and expectations that misogyny polices and enforces, especially in your own milieu, the United States, with its reputation for being egalitarian? And I'm sure we could often um, describe a number of other places as being perceived to be egalitarian, including Australia, which we would often say is part of our national identity. Totally. Whether we achieve that or not is another thing, but it's certainly something we hold quite dear I want to then ask about these examples of entitlement that you take us through in Entitled, your latest book. There are so many different forms of entitlement that you describe and give such concrete real-life examples of. When you're reading it, it kind of feels a little bit overwhelming because you are being presented with all the evidence, well, not even all the evidence, I'm sure there's much more evidence, but um, so many different examples that, that we do, you know, become aware of more and more in our own lives. So maybe we could tackle some of those and get to know um, some of these issues of entitlement in a bit more depth. Maybe we could start with abortion, given that you just mentioned that as being one of the issues. And it seems like in America that abortion is becoming 
more of an issue in a legal sense that um, it seems like it may be heading to the Supreme Court at some point to be tested and that a lot of states are making their own rules and tightening their own rules more and more to prevent women accessing abortion within their own states. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a massive crackdown in the last you know, six, eight years in the US where states are steadily restricting access to abortion by um, over-regulating abortion providers. Um, so one of the things that they'll do is, you know, require clinics, this is just one example, to have admitting privileges, even though the rate of complications for abortion are incredibly low and no comparable outpatient surgery requires similar admitting privileges, but it just is one more hoop that makes more and more clinics shut down um, and not be able to offer um, any services to women who need them. And to me that that there's, of course, a whole big long argument that that is in defense of life, which is pretty unconvincing given that the people who are um, promulgating anti-abortion rhetoric are seemingly not concerned with providing health care to anyone really, but especially women and children. They're not concerned with things like water quality, saying in Flint, Michigan, where water is completely undrinkable and toxic. They're not concerned with the black lives that are being lost due to police brutality. They're not concerned with the fact that we have literally billions of animals who are being slaughtered in brutal ways in factory farming. Um, so it's a very, very selective concern with life. And I argue that it makes more sense to think of these people as trying to control women's bodies rather than deeply concerned. With the fetus, I think there is, at least at the level of the whole movement, um, this is a movement that was uh, generated as an astroturf political movement. It wasn't a grassroots movement. It was deliberately engineered in service of trying to get people in the South, especially white um, hitherto Southern Democrats, to vote Republican, um, with the thought being that this would be a way to mobilize people to panic about the destabilization of the nuclear family. And so through a long argument by looking at both the genesis of the anti-abortion movement um, in the early 70s prior to the Roe v. Wade decision um, in the US, but also looking at the huge hypocrisy of anti-abortion proponents who don't care about life in umpteen other vital contexts, um, including the ones I mentioned and also in, in the case of uh, the death penalty, I think the best explanation is that we have people who are heavily invested in controlling women's bodies. And then I, I draw a link between that and the incredible um, policing and hostility shown to the bodies of trans women in restricting bathroom access to women who are trans and who simply want to be able to use the toilet. Yeah, so there's, I think... An investment in policing the bodies of all women, cis and trans, that really has to be combated on a systemic level. Well, if we 
draw into that, I guess, one of the other key issues that you raise at the start of the book in the first couple of chapters, and that is also relating to women's bodies as well and their agency. And it's around really violent sexual acts such as rape and sexual and domestic violence usually most often at the hands of men against women. Um, And these are some things that we've certainly seen in so many issues publicly, and you name quite a number of examples. And um, it also harks back to your discussion at the beginning of our chat around um, American colleges, for example, and some of the the acts that occurred on college campuses that have become really public. And of course, you also draw in um, at the very start of your book, incels, um, which is the term about involuntary celibates. And so, you know, I'm interested in how entitlement plays out in these violent realms, sexually violent realms, and how entitlement is operating in those situations and examples yeah no thanks I really appreciate you asking about that because I think there is an incredibly prevalent sense of male entitlement where again the connection to misogyny is something like if a male sense of entitlement isn't satisfied or is actively challenged then misogynistic punishment is liable to result for the women doing the challenging or who are perceived as withholding or negligent or ignoring a man who is entitled to that attention. And I think this phenomenon takes several different forms. And one of the forms, just as you said, it takes is this relatively new phenomenon of incels, so-called involuntary celibates who are these typically young, invariably heterosexual men who regard themselves as entitled to sex with quote-unquote hot women. And the uh, the man who I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, Elliot Roger, is the kind of patron saint of incels. He's a common avatar for these people and commonly cited as inspiration from them. But even though they're uh, perceived as and, and bill themselves as having this entitlement to sex with women, I think it's it's even more so an obsession with having women's sexual admiration. So Roger was someone who bemoaned his lack, not just of sex, but also love and affection and admiration. And similarly, Insel's rhetoric often betrays this sense, not only of desire to be looked up to by women and found desirable by them, but a sense that they're being positively betrayed by women in particular and by the world in general if they're not granted this favor and it's a very important distinction because of course anyone can feel a desire to be desired and they can feel disappointed if their dating life isn't what they wanted but it's when that disappointment becomes bitterness and a sense of aggrieved entitlement to use the term coined by sociologist michael kimmel that we find people stepping into violent behavior when that sense of entitlement is thwarted um, or challenged. So incels are prone to uh, violent acts when, or at least threatening violent acts when their desires go unsatisfied, which is, you know, a pretty scary thing to be happening. Yeah, it's one of these cesspools on the internet where really violent and disturbing rhetoric that threatens women with rape and murder is par for the course. And of course, there are also aspects of sexual entitlement that I try to show don't involve incels at all and that are 
commoner gotten men who regard themselves as entitled to have sex with a woman if they've ever been in a relationship with her. And these men are, are incredibly enabled, especially in the U.S. context, by extreme police inaction when it comes to even crimes of rape that in some cases that I look at, men have confessed to, quote unquote, having sex with a woman while she was unconscious, which of course constitutes sexual assault. And yet there's a reluctance to prosecute men for that crime in the sense that it's not that bad, that somehow the fact that they had a prior relationship renders that okay, which of course is uh, the furthest thing from the truth. You know, so that's another dimension of this sexual entitlement is, yeah, a sense that once you've been in a relationship with a woman, until she's perhaps claimed by the next husband or boyfriend, she is sexually fair game, um, which is reinforced by social structures that fail to take action when men do commit these crimes. And still a third, maybe the most subtle aspect of sexual entitlement that I canvass is a sense of entitlement to consent. So I should say, you know, I think consent is a vital part of ethically healthy sex. You know, it's certainly a a necessity, but I think it's also not sufficient because in a very patriarchal society, women will sometimes feel obligated to consent to sex, even without pressure from a male partner in particular. They'll feel pressure from more general social forces to um, adhere to a social script that bids her essentially to to give him her consent as part of what's socially expected of her. Otherwise, she'll feel guilty, she'll feel rude, as in Kristen Raponian's short story cat person. And so we do, I think, have a phenomenon where sadly some girls and women go through with sex that they really don't want and do consent to it but not because it's something that they desire for their own sake or for the sake of the pleasure involved or the connection, but simply because they regard themselves as obligated to not disappoint the man they're with. And, you know, I think that while not a crime on anyone's part is really ethically unhealthy and a sad thing. Um, So those are some of the aspects of sexual entitlement that that I try to tease apart. Yeah, and and certainly, as you say, consent is essential, but it shouldn't be the only part of that sexual interaction. Right. And often popular culture and even, you know, we hear about pornography being an example where we see sex becoming a very transactional exchange, often with really unequal power dynamics um, being reinforced. And then we see, you know, these types of things become education sources for some people and not just men, but also women and boys and girls taking on these really unhelpful ideas about male and female um, sexual interaction and what to expect from one another. Totally. And yeah, I think that's a, it's a real shame. It, you know, results, of course, in potentially, you know, illegal sexual activity. But I think we should also be really interested in sexual activity that isn't illegal, that is, yeah, ethically subpar, that isn't all it could be, where people don't feel a, a full sense that they're entitled to say no at any time, to stop things, to slow things down. You know, I think it would be really great if we taught not just that consent is important, but it's also really important to 
be interested in whether your partner genuinely wants to be there and wants to be doing what they're doing and that they're not just saying yes out of an unhealthy sense of obligation but that they're um and that they're not just performing enthusiastic consent but that there is you know a real desire there and you know i think there is an art that um, should be talked more about to making sure people have very graceful social outs which allow them to get out of situations that could otherwise inadvertently become coercive not really because of a particular person being a coercer but because social scripts are powerful and if a social script says that you know if you've had a date and you go home together then sex should result there should at least be ethical care involved to ensure that, that doesn't become a scenario where people end up doing things that they really don't want to do that's a really great point about social scripts and one other thing i want to touch on before we move on was um around and it very much related is the situation that young women I hear find themselves in on, for example, dating platforms, you know, where they receive unsolicited sexual pictures from men and the sense that they will need to, I guess, be polite or to pretend that that's something that they want to receive um, in order to not offend the person who sent it to them, even though that may be something that seems benign because it's a kind of a digital exchange over the internet and it's not necessarily a physical exchange as yet, it seems that that also is problematic from an entitlement sense. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a great example of entitlement, both in feeling entitled to send unsolicited, typically undesired graphic images, you know, in, in other words, dick pics, which, you know, there was an interesting episode of The Cut recently, which got into how poorly lit and poorly orchestrated and not aesthetically pleasing the average dick pic is. And that that sounds true to, to, to my uh, limited experience at any rate. But there's also the fact that, yeah, rather than a woman being deemed appropriately entitled to say, that's uncalled for or blocking or remonstrating with someone who does that when it's really inappropriate, there's often a sense that, yeah, she has to either let him down gently, she's not entitled to hurt his feelings. And so the flip side of the sense of male entitlement is a lack of female entitlement to be firm and assertive and to have what she is genuinely entitled to, namely not being sent unsolicited images of this kind and being able to be candid that that's not what she wants if if that's indeed the case. Yeah, and I guess as you are showing and have shown throughout this conversation in the books that you've written is that there are so many layers and levels, I guess, of entitlement within these kind of areas of, um, for example, sexual relations, power relations, relations in the professional realm as well. Before we just get to the professional realm I did want to ask about the term that you created, this term called hympathy, because it's something that does come up in these examples that we have just been talking about, particularly when we're looking at accusations around sexual assault and rape, for example. And one really prominent example that you give right at the start of the book is the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And obviously, we saw such a huge 
amount of division in American society, or at least that's what it looked like from the outside when we saw these hearings being conducted as to whether he would be appointed to the Supreme Court in the US. And the really, I guess, not just questioning, but undermining of the person who had been accusing Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault, Christine Blasey Ford. And she, you know, not just being, I guess, undermined, but she also was being seen as a not credible witness and potentially a victim in this situation herself. And we saw many examples, which um, you provide, of sympathy towards Brett Kavanaugh from very, very senior figures, including um, other US senators, really pointing out that poor Brett Kavanaugh had been hauled over the coals um, in something that was completely uncalled for and characterised as being hell. Yeah, that was Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham. And no, the characterization of empathy is exactly right. I mean, I think of it as the flip side of misogyny. So misogyny is about punishing um, and showing hostility to women when they don't behave in the required ways. And empathy is about extending sympathy and exonerating men when they behave in misogynistic ways. So sympathizing with these people who in Kavanaugh's case were credibly accused of committing sexual assault over his female victim, Christine Blasey Ford, you know, there were really striking examples like Graham and also like Trump um, where their sympathy was all for the man, uh, the sense that his life had been ruined, that he was going through, just as you said, hell, because he was being questioned about this history, as opposed to being sympathetic towards Blasey Ford, who was very plausibly the victim in all of this, and who also, whatever you thought about what happened in the case, and for the record, I completely believe her, but whatever you thought, she was undoubtedly going through hell and worse in terms of the death threats, um, rape threats directed at her. She had to move out of her home. You know, her family was under threat. And she, of course, wasn't in line for a position of the most um, you know, exalted authority figure in the land in the form of Supreme Court justice, unlike Kavanaugh. Um, so where was the sympathy for her? And that's the kind of question that the critique of empathy encourages us to ask. It encourages us to refocus some of our moral attention and concern on people who surely deserve it, female victims and targets of misogynistic behaviour. And in terms of empathy, it's not just men, you know, having empathy. Totally. We really did see a lot of women having that as well. Yeah, sometimes women can be, especially white women, can be just as bad or worse on the empathy front. I think because women are very socialised to extend sympathy and concern to others because of, well, misogyny, um, you know, among other things. We're taught that it's incredibly important as a woman to be caring and compassionate, and there are often misogynistic consequences for withholding care and concern. And one way I like to put it is that sympathy like heat travels up the social hierarchy um, so that often it, the most salient and seemingly natural objects of sympathy and concern turn out to be powerful and privileged men. So you had tons of, of women, again, predominantly white women in the U.S., who were um, incredibly sympathetic to Kavanaugh and thought Christine Blasey Ford was either a liar or they dismissed her and said, you know, I believe her, but it was, you know, 30 odd years ago, what does it matter? 
Yeah, I remember people saying, you know, she was so young, maybe she just didn't remember it well. Yeah, it's belt and braces, you know. It's not just that women aren't believed, it's that even when they are believed, people find other bases for dismissing women. Um, You know, it was so long ago, she was very young, um, she's making too big of a deal of it. And, you know, I think none of those things were true in her case. She was raising legitimate, important concerns about a man who was about to be appointed and was subsequently appointed to the US Supreme Court and so should be held to very high moral standards. Um, So, yeah, I think people, including women, uh, share these biases oftentimes, which cause us to be awfully concerned about the loss of his illustrious future or amazing career or what have you, and much less concerned about um, the people who they hurt and harm. One issue that I find to be really problematic that you raise in this book and I feel is not often um, comprehensively discussed. It kind of comes up in these waves or or kind of small examples but not looked at in this broader picture and that's um, the chapter that you have on entitlement to knowledge mm-hmm. and this is something which when we think back to perhaps our secondary years and we think okay well you know it's the people who study the hardest who um, are the smartest who get the best marks and so you know merit is the kind of thing that overrides everything else Um, and we have this kind of perception very problematic perception of merit which um, is a whole kind of other related topic but when we get to university for example we might start to realize that actually there are these sex and gender based biases that are pervasive around the way that ideas and knowledge that particularly women put forward is received and often it can be seen as where if a male says it it's rational and you know evidence-based if a woman says it perhaps it's stems from emotion and maybe is not logical or or as authoritative for example as if a male said it and I wondered about that chapter and that issue about knowledge and the entitlement to not just having knowledge but Mm -hmm. giving knowledge and disseminating knowledge because you know given that you talk about social scripts and um, even you know the the things that we hear from authoritative sources in everyday life in our news media in our books and um, from public intellectuals for example this is an area that does have great influence on the way that we conduct our politics, that we conduct gender relations and sexual relations, that we think through intersectional issues that you mentioned around disability and class and race. So given its, you know, pervasive influence, I thought it would be something that would be remiss not to talk about. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this particular area, you know, how you see this both from this philosophical perspective that you're writing from, but also from a personal perspective, given that you are yourself an intellectual, someone who has written two books and is an authority on a particular topic like this. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think this is one of the things that I most hoped people would take up and think about as a result of this second book this sense that certain paradigmatically more privileged men are entitled to disseminate information, to say what they know, to issue authoritative explanations, and as a result, to dominate the conversation. And that has a kind of um, corollary, which is women are then 
often deemed obligated to be the listeners, the ones who pay attention, the ones who are good interlocutors who say, you know, yes, Socrates, no, Socrates, um, to a male Socratic figure. And I think that that presents both barriers to women who are entering knowledge-based fields, you know, and those include things like academia and, of course, journalism um, and, you know, science, um, as well as certain kinds of, of roles in um, tech and business. And, you know, I also think they lead to more everyday insidious phenomena like mansplaining. So when men feel entitled to be the ones who explain things to women, then it tends to result in, well, exactly that happening, in men holding forth without bothering to inquire if a woman wants to know the information that he's trying to impart, whether she already knows it, whether she might, in fact might be more expert than him in that particular area. And yeah, I think it's something that we can only combat by looking quite systematically at uh, gendered social relations and ways in which this is one form of entitlement among many to have this prestigious thing, which is the kind of the, the conversational position of the authority that's traditionally seen as men's rightful province and not something that can belong to women. Um, so that's certainly been something I've noticed a lot in my own career that uh, there are barriers as a woman to being a commentator on social and political issues, which is, you know, these days my bread and butter. Um, there is a lot of gendered hostility. You know, studies have shown that female journalists, for example, receive much more hate mail. And this is especially true for women of colour. Uh, they receive enormous amounts of hostility when they write online, trying to, as you said, present themselves rightfully as authorities. That's something that women are not perceived as entitled to do, even when they do have the requisite knowledge and expertise to mean that they ought to be perceived as authorities, as people who know what they're talking about and can help inform others. In those situations, it reminds me of this um, conceptualization that you've put forward around sexism being these beliefs that women should not be the authority, um, that you should just be the listener, and then misogyny being, well, now I'm going to verbally abuse you, I'm going to write um, sexualized attacks against you, um, you know, undermine your self belief and confidence with, I guess, verbal aggressiveness and aggression exactly yeah and then that's I guess the policing part of it yes that's exactly right I mean sexism is the belief that women don't know much or they don't know much in male-dominated fields and then misogyny is the rage when it turns out women actually do know what they're talking about and there's often this misplaced confidence um within you know especially white liberal milieu where we think well, if we can just get the information across that women are really good at counter-stereotypical things like math or philosophy or politics or what have you, then, um, you know, stereotypes will be broken and all will be well. But it turns out, I think that that's not true, that it's precisely the recognition that women can excel in these roles, roles and fields that makes some people furious and evince misogynistic rage towards these women and the more vulnerable women who they often punch down at. So, 
yeah, I think we have to recognize that it's not just about busting myths and dissolving false beliefs, but it's also about correcting and getting past pretty problematic desires to put women down. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of um, the discussions that, oh, we just need to do some unconscious bias training right. and, you know, people will be less sexist <laughs> at work and, you know, all our problems will be solved and then, you know, they do the training and nothing really changes. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's hopefully a good start, although even now we have to be careful, as you point out, but it's just not going to be sufficient. A lot of these hostilities aren't really implicit. They're kind of, they're pretty explicit. And a lot of them don't involve a belief that women are inferior, but a rage that we're not. And just finally in that chapter, and it's something that you raise as being one of the darkest manifestations of epistemic entitlement, particularly in the realm of knowledge, and that's gaslighting. And given how pervasive gaslighting is, not just in this realm of knowledge, but elsewhere, how do you see gaslighting coming back to entitlement, but also misogyny and it being, I guess, a part of that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I should say, I think gaslighting can happen along various different gender lines. So I think parents can gaslight children Mm. and women can gaslight other people, including men. So I think one, I think nevertheless, that it's characteristically a gendered phenomena that it tends to be gendered even though it's not necessarily gendered but the way I think of it as linked to entitlement is that someone who gaslights someone else has a sense of entitlement to control the narrative and to make let's say along typically gendered lines to make her believe his side of the story over her own and that desire to make someone not just agree with him but make her essentially emotionally and intellectually incapable of challenging him by labeling her either an irrational basket case or a bad, immoral, even evil person in as much as she's looking like she's maybe challenging his word. That's a kind of, it's more than epistemic domination. It's in a way epistemic colonization of someone's whole person. And so it's particularly creepy that by um, doing this, by practicing this rhetorical strategy, you can get someone to abandon her own experience and buy into his narrative, his story about what's going on, even despite the evidence right in front of her that he's lying. Mm. Um, So it's a particularly powerful tool that I think has been an especially strong form of male domination even though it's not limited to men's dominance over women it is a huge boon to a man who wants to control and police and punish women um, to be able to make her participate and complicit in her own domination and colonization yeah that's a really great point about that gendered element um, and how it's it extends across all genders and it does make me think that perhaps even at a leadership level, one can gaslight an electorate around, Absolutely. well, actually, this is the reality. You don't understand what the real reality is. Here I can lay it out for you. Um, and, and I guess constructing a reality and manipulating, emotionally manipulating a, a population into thinking and coming along to their side. That's exactly what Trump has done. 
I mean, he's made, you know, around 40% of the population in the US uh, feel obligated to buy his narrative, even despite the evidence of science, of their own senses, of reputable news sources. He makes it feel like there is something wrong with his supporters if they don't subscribe to you know i could call them lies but in a way that would be too generous he commands people to subscribe to his narratives without even pretending that it's the truth it's you know a very pure form of domination where his assertions in a way are really prescriptions to take his word for it or else yeah, it is disturbing <laughs> to see it operating on that grand kind of meta scale. Yeah. Seeing it as at a microcosmic level, it it's really quite malicious, but then seeing its power at that broader scale is horrific really um, and shows yeah. its, its potential, I guess. And how do we recover from it? That's the question we face before us. Even, yeah. even after Biden's election, it's not clear how to recover that percentage of the population that has been systematically gaslit and has bought into an alternative version of reality. Mm, yeah, it will, be, it will be interesting to say the least. And of course, I'm sure it's far more than interesting for someone like you who's living through it, is witnessing these, um, these effects firsthand. I just want to conclude on the note that you conclude on, which is to say that you write in the conclusion that I want my daughter to know that she is entitled to be powerful and on occasion to compete with other people, including privileged boys and men. I want my daughter to know that her own entitlements in these respects are crucially connected with some of her most important and moral obligations, the obligation all of us share, regardless of our gender, to make this world one in which structural injustices are actively being rectified. So with that in mind and with that um, message that you provide at the end of the book, what would be the takeaway from a conversation like this where we see misogyny and sexism as not just an individual issue but something that is structurally based and therefore pervasive and connected in so intrinsically with the patriarchy and our patriarchal system? And what might we do to make sure that women and girls, including your daughter and all those men listening who have daughters and um, mothers who have daughters and all the people listening who even the way that men kind of get caught up in this patriarchal system and have norms and expectations shoved upon them. How do we actually start to challenge the structures that are so pervasive and I guess that perhaps may have individual faces when there are examples but are not really tied just to the individual situation? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. I think I would urge people listening to this and, you know, who are sympathetic to feminism's broad egalitarian message to pay attention to the details to think not just, yeah, I believe in equality, I believe men and women should have equal opportunity, which is, you know, a kind of a bare minimum and an entry point to the conversation, but really pay attention to some of the um, insidious ways that um, male privilege can manifest and women are entitled to more. Like thinking about 
the fact that in the US at least, and I believe Australia is similar, men do about half the domestic and childbearing work as their female partners, even when both of them are working full time. Um, you know, think about whether in a household there is an equal distribution of domestic and childbearing labor. Um, think about, you know, who gets to dominate in a conversation and who has to remain relatively submissive and if not quiet, then at least attentive and helpful and cooperative rather than being allowed to challenge, um, you know, his version of reality or his argument or his position. You know, think about much more um, obvious things as well, like whether there are forms of sexual domination that can be combated and productively, productively undone and disentangled, as well as whether there are ways in which women are being actively disempowered and which we all could contribute more to allowing women to hold appropriate, ethically careful forms of productive power instead of having to be subordinate to men in perpetuity. Um, so those are just some of the questions that I hope people come away from my work thinking hard about and wanting to combat in both everyday ways and in more global structural ways. Yeah, that's a really, really great takeaway message. And of course, entitlement to medical care being another example that you do go into great depth um, in in this book entitled, but we haven't um, gone into huge depth now. But I've got to say, I think it is one of the most important ways that women are disempowered is when they're not listened to and their history of their own bodies and experiences in illness aren't trusted or respected. So yeah, that's so much, so many things, but healthcare, of course, being, you know, critical to the way that we are able to interact and be well enough to, to do the things that we want to um, through our own agency. Completely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a chapter in this book, that it could almost have been, um, or almost should have been a book in its own right, just the ways in which we are appropriately attentive to at least privileged men within the medical system, but for women, especially vulnerable women, um, be they poor women or women of color or indigenous women, they're routinely dismissed and regarded as unreliable narrators of their own bodily experience with sometimes detrimental results. Um, you know, disgraceful rates, for example, in the US of maternal mortality um, should really be a wake-up call that we need to not just listen to women but care about women and not just regard women as obligated to care for others but see women as entitled to care for their own sake on their own behalf. Mm. Gosh, Kate, I really appreciate everything you've given us today because it's been so enlightening and, um, you know, having read your books. I feel empowered to understand what's going on in the world a lot more and also to do something about it. So I, I do want to say a big thank you to you for your time and your generous insight and also the deep thought with which you've really um, tackled these difficult topics. And um, I think it's just such an immeasurable contribution to our intellectual understanding, but also our real life understanding, because as we've discussed here today, it has 
constant real world effects on the way that um, men, women and non-binary people experience their lives. And so it couldn't be more important. Well, I so appreciate our conversation, Amy. It's just such a, a pleasure to get to grapple with these issues with someone like you who is seriously committed to thinking through them and hopefully getting us out the other side of them one day. So thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. I've been speaking there with Kate Mann, who is an Associate Professor in Philosophy at Cornell University. She is also the author of two books, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, and also her latest book is called Entitled, How Male Privilege Hurts Women. It's out through Alan Lane, which is an imprint of Penguin Books. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.